Hello, I'm Paul Evans and you're listening to Airing Pain, a programme brought to you by Pain Concern, the UK charity providing information and support for those of us living with pain and healthcare professionals. This edition's been funded by a grant from the Scottish Government. And I'm returning to a subject that was explored in depth by health professionals and some patient groups in the British Pain Society's annual scientific meeting of 2014. Shared decision-making in the context of a doctor-patient relationship implies that the patient's viewpoint, expectations and circumstances are essential components for a successful treatment plan. It might seem fairly obvious, a no-brainer in fact, that the patient's expert, and I do think that's an appropriate word, the patient's expert knowledge of how persistent pain is impacting on his or her daily life should be taken into account. But the fact that shared decision-making is an issue highlighted in this British Pain Society meeting and elsewhere indicates that the concept is not universally accepted or even understood. Tamara Pincus, a professor in health psychology specialising in pain at Royal Holloway University of London, has looked at what GPs can say to patients when they present for the first time with low back pain or other conditions of which very little is understood in terms of their cause and outcome. The problem is the GP is supposed to reassure these patients. How do you reassure when you don't actually know? How do you reassure in the context of uncertainty? So in the workshop that I presented here, we looked at evidence that suggests very strongly that what helps patients is good information, giving a good explanation in simple words that a patient can understand, discussing with them the possibilities of which treatments they're going to get, which treatments they want. That's very useful. The question is, where does the empathy and the building the relationship and the it's going to be okay, you can trust me, come into it? Because the evidence on this was very surprising. You'd think, and I certainly thought when I went into it, that this would be essential, that nobody would even tell their GP what their problem was until they trusted them and they really had a relationship with them. And I think that's probably the case. But it seems that if the GP is over-affective, and by that I mean very, very reassuring at those later stages of the consultation, the stages where they're actually educating, giving information, agreeing treatment, if at that point it's too much of a personal, emotive engagement, it actually isn't good for the patients. Do you mean that... If that reassurance comes late in the cycle of treatment, it's almost like saying, listen, we've been through everything. Let's have a sit down and talk about what's on your mind. That's a really good question. First of all, what's on your mind should be at early stages. I think there's no question that the early stages are about the patient talking and that the patient should do the majority of the talking and the practitioner should elicit their concerns as well as facts. The problem of doing the touchy-feely stuff, not just then, but also at the end, is that what you're actually giving is a message of, you can trust me, you don't need to work, you don't need to take this on board, I'll take care of you. And that actually doesn't give patients tools to cope with their problem. So three weeks down the line, when the pain hits them again, they haven't been given any new tools to work with it. So 
they need to disengage from this, it's okay, I'm going to be taken care of, in order to take on a different role, which is, I'm now going to listen and try and learn how to take care of myself. I think that's what the research is pointing at. But I have to stress that the evidence is from primary care in general and not pain specifically. So when you started your research, what was the question? I started the research because I believe that we've neglected a very important element in our research. We've looked a lot at what the patient brings to the consultation. So we look at whether they're depressed or anxious or fearful, working, not working, and that does predict their health. What we haven't looked at is what the clinician brings to the consultation. And my research in the last few years has indicated that clinicians' beliefs really affect their decision-making. So, for example, many clinicians tell patients that they need to take a short break from work. That's against guidelines. The guidelines suggest that you should go back to work as soon as possible, even if you need to modify what you do at work, and you need to stay engaged in your life for as much as you possibly can. If a clinician doesn't believe that, they are not going to obey the guidelines. They're not going to be in line with the guidelines. So I was really interested in looking at clinicians' beliefs. And once you start looking at clinicians' beliefs and patients' beliefs, you have to look at the interaction between those two. And that's when I started to think about how to reassure patients, how to educate patients, and how to enable patients to take care of their own problems. A theme through this British Pain Society annual scientific meeting seems to be joint decision-making. Each has an equal part. Is that what you're getting at, that the doctor doesn't seem to be engaging in this? I think it's more complex because it would be lovely if we had one thing that fitted everybody. Joint decision, 50-50, that's it. It's just not like that. Some people come in to a consultation and they really do want 90% of the decision-making to be handled by the doctor. That's their need. We need to respect those wishes. They'll probably do better if we do. Others come in and want to actually tell the practitioner what they want, and they will be offended and feel patronized when a practitioner will turn around and argue because they feel that they know. They know their body. They know their problem. Again, probably they should be doing more of the decision-making, providing it's not harming them. And there, there is more of a, of a discussion there. Different styles suit different patients. My argument is that we've just assumed that we can do consultations, but we haven't researched how to do them right for different types of patients at different stages of the consultation. So we, we really don't know enough about how to do this thing correctly. So how do you identify those people who come in who just want a doctor to make me better and those people who want to take a larger part of it? It might not be as obvious as you're saying. There is absolutely no way currently that we can identify those empirically. I'm sure that doctors have very good intuition about it, some doctors might even ask, would you like me to make all the decisions here? I've never been asked by a doctor that kind of question. Maybe there are those who ask it out there. But the empirical data about the consultation is a myth. The idea that we know how to do it is a myth. The data isn't out there.
You did a workshop today with health professionals. What were the barriers? There are many different opinions about psychology in pain. There are many fractions and factions, and they all are pulling in different directions. So where are we now in terms of psychology in pain? We've done trials for the last 15 years, and we know that psychology is quite effective. But the effect is small. It's really disappointing because we thought that we could really, really change things more when we targeted psychology. That means that there's a group of people who are sitting there going, no more psychological trials. There's another group of people who are pragmatists. They look at the NHS and they go, there's hardly any psychologists working in pain. So why on earth would we want to do trials on psychology when we can't roll it out afterwards to patients? There's another group of psychologists who are going, you've never given it a chance. All the, all the trials that you've done were not done with psychologists delivering enough good psychology to people who needed psychological intervention. Put all of those in a room and you'll see that delivering a talk can be stressful. But I thought it was well established that pain is a biopsychosocial phenomenon. Take the psychology out of that, what's left? You're taking the mind out of it. In the keynote that I've just given, I've outlined at least three myths that I think have really hindered us from moving forward. The first one is the idea that if you remove the pain, all this psychology would just go away. Now, that is a myth. It's a myth for several reasons. At late stages of chronic pain, you, it's very unlikely that you'll remove the pain. And even if you did, the behaviors are entrenched already. Behaviors like disengaging from life, protecting yourself. You have to actually tackle those, not just the pain. Even in earlier stages, if you ignore risk factors such as depression and anxiety, you might remove the pain, but my suspicion is that another health problem will manifest itself because you haven't tackled the risk factors. So that's myth number one. Another myth is that if it's too complicated and hard to do, then we won't be able to roll it out in the NHS to patients, so let's not even do a trial on it. That's a really sad one, because you would never do that on open-heart surgery, for example. You would never say, oh, this is so expensive and, and needs so much specialist training that we won't even research it. But somehow in psychology, that's exactly what has happened. And instead, what we get is watered-down psychology delivered by non-psychologists in tiny doses. So even if the model is accepted, it's not actually being given a chance. Well, I'm confused now because I thought psychological approaches, talking therapies, if you like, I thought they were well established as being meaningful and essential to managing chronic pain. You will come across some psychologists in uh, pain programs. Sometimes you'll have a pain program that says there's psychology in it, but there isn't psychology in it. Often psychology is delivered by non-psychologists, and yes, I think there is a recognition that we need to tackle psychology, and especially in chronic pain, but there are not the resources, there is not the training, the psychologists aren't out there. And in terms of funding, research is turning its back on it, which is very worrying. I would have thought that chronic pain in psychology would be a very, very sexy subject for a young psychologist to think about. It's a fantastic area to research, but we simply are in a situation where people are saying, we've got enough, we don't need any more, thank you very much. 
We know psychology works, but it doesn't work as well as we hoped it would. Uh, we do not need to find out more about psychology now. We know everything we need to know. And we're just going to do offer a little bit to everybody. And the real shame about it is that means you never research mechanisms. You never really identify the needs of subgroups, the more complicated issues of how to match treatment exactly to the needs of specific individuals. Instead, you do a kind of generic, oh, okay, so anybody who scores more than five on this particular questionnaire will get to see a physiotherapist who's also trained in psychology for a couple of weekends, and we're going to call that a psychological intervention. So in an ideal world, what could a psychologist offer that isn't offered now? In an ideal world, we would really start thinking about theory-driven psychology. Meaning? I particularly like acceptance and commitment therapy. Cognitive behavioral therapy often has this idea that there's a dysfunctional cognition uh, involved in depression and pain. But actually, if you've had pain for a very, very long time, a lot of your fears and sadness and depression are not dysfunctional. They're realistic. You really have lost a lot. Acceptance and commitment therapy doesn't even go there. Instead, it's about being flexible enough to embrace what you have got in your life and live with what you can't change. And I like that very much. And I would like to see that trialled in a large trial here in the UK. Acceptance and commitment therapy is getting established, but you're saying there's not enough of it around. There's not enough of it around, and there's not enough empirical evidence for it. Currently, there isn't a single large trial on ACT for pain. It's coming, but it's not quite there yet. The other interesting thing, at least from my pilot, which we've just finished on this, which was funded by Arthritis Research UK, suggests that patients actually want a combination of ACT with physiotherapy. They feel really strongly that the pain is in their body, not just their mind. They love the ACT, and they use it, but they also want something in the body, some exercises, maybe some manual therapy, maybe just some prodding and pulling Whatever it is, they want this combination, a synergy. But that is accepted theory now. Perhaps that's the right word, accepted theory. Exactly. But not the accepted practice. I think that's true. And one reason is that there simply are not enough psychologists around. Uh, clinical psychologists are gold dust at best, and they don't go into the pain services. Did you come across any blank faces in the audience? I don't tend to have blank faces in the audience, um, possibly because I, I tend to be quite controversial and, and provoke a lot. I had smiles, but I didn't have any blank faces. Because I, I would think that, that you have been controversial, and I would expect doctors to stand up and say, no, you're wrong, we are doing this, and we do take you seriously. The evidence on the ground is that they don't, and the evidence that I presented from trials is, is that they don't. I, I, a lot of trials, because they're not psychologists there, have trained physiotherapists to deliver CBT, and they call it a CBT approach. And one of the things that I've said in the plenary, and I was joking, but only semi-joking, I said, my husband has back pain, and sometimes I give him a massage. And I've learned to give a massage by observing the physiotherapists who work next to me, and by looking at YouTube, who also give 
show you beautiful little videos of training. And I don't call it physiotherapy, I call it a physiotherapy approach. That's Tamar Pincus, Professor in Health Psychology at Royal Holloway, University of London. This seems like a good time to remind you that whilst we believe the information and opinions on airing pain are accurate and sound based on the best judgments available, you should always consult your health professional on any matter relating to your health and well-being. He or she is the only person who knows you, your circumstances and therefore the appropriate action to take on your behalf. Going back to acceptance and commitment therapy, if you want to learn more about it, listen to Airing Pain programme numbers 16 and 45, which, like all editions of Airing Pain, you can download or obtain CD copies direct from Pain Concern. If you'd like to put a question to Pain Concern's panel of experts or just make a comment about these programmes, then please do so via our blog, message board, email, Facebook, Twitter or even pen and paper. All the contact details are at our website, which is painconcern.org.uk. Now, staying with the theme of shared decision-making, Frances Cole is a GP in West Yorkshire. She's a pain rehabilitation specialist. So what is that? I mean by pain rehabilitation, enabling people with long-term pain to begin to understand that they're dealing not only with the pain itself, but the way it impacts on them physically, emotionally, on their lives, socially, activities with their family and their future. And then from beginning to understand that, looking at how to minimise the distress and upset that the pain causes, reduce and minimise the disability the limitations, and maximise that individual's health and well-being so they can connect, give, notice what's going on around them, be much more active and keep learning. The word rehabilitate to me means I've had an illness and now I'm going to get better. That's not the case in all cases of chronic pain, is it? No, I think it's quite interesting because sometimes people use the word recovery and actually, we're not talking about recovery. And what it means is that when you have any long-term condition, and pain is one of the long-term conditions, then actually we're about enabling that person, both their physical body, their mind, and their lives, to be as good as is possible, still with the condition being part of them. So that's part of an acceptance that I'm different from what I was but I can be as best as I possibly can be in all those areas. That's putting the pain somewhere else in your life. In your life, in yourself, in your mind, so that you're in control in where it is in your minute-to-minute, hour-to-hour, day-to-day. It does not determine or limit or shape how you are. It's the other way around. You shape you and your life and the pain is shaped so it has to be as you want it to be to live the life that you would value so you're a gp Mm -hmm. how do you tell a patient how to do that well over the years interesting enough i've worked out a kind of system that works first of all we don't rush so we may see the person several times over three to six 10 to 15 minute sessions over probably 12 to 20 weeks and 
and work with the individual to help them to identify what would they value changing? What would be most important for them to change at the moment about the way the pain is affecting them, either body-wise, mind-wise, work-wise, relationship-wise, money-wise, whatever their issues are. Help them to become aware, actually, of the bigger picture. So there's quite a lot of information about this condition called long-term pain. And then share them with them the hope that there are things locally, because where I work, we have lots of self-management support and resources, that we've got quite a lot of possibilities and offer them some choices. And that would be for session one. They have the time between the first and second session to think perhaps talk at home with somebody, bring up someone, check out something, come back and share with me what they've discovered. They then say, okay, so how do we take that forward? So it's very much a kind of conversation. What is it that you need to do? What is it that I need to do as a GP to help this keep going? Okay. So, so you share in that decision-making? Absolutely. I mean, to me, it's almost second nature. We're in this together. Right. It's confusing. We're not quite sure. I've got some information, some knowledge, some experience, and networks and links. You've got the same. We've got to pool it, and we've got to kind of see what options there are, what options you're coming to see me with, what options we've really got, what options other people think you should be looking at. Okay, And then we need to kind of pool it here on the table and have a kind of discussion around it. And then... I'll leave you to go away and think about perhaps the pluses and minuses of each of those kind of three or four key areas. Often there's a lot of options. You try and help the person to just focus on maybe two or three that they might kind of at least start with. Then we just do some reviews and kind of keep them on track using questions to guide their discovery about is this the journey that they want to take? Is this the way it's going? And what I've discovered is that actually once you start them off, about four sessions down the line, and we're just talking four consultations, they're off because they've found and linked into a whole series in a new world where actually they can learn more knowledge, skills, tools and resources. They can connect with other people like themselves. They can begin to see those other people have got a new self-identity and are beginning to explore how they did it and how maybe they could do it and therefore how they can shape it. I heard this past week a lovely story how this young 36-year-old, having had three spinal operations, and uh, most of the time was spending either in bed or in, in a wheelchair, has through three shared decision process consultations, is now in the expert patient programme, is doing Pilates, and presented to Kirkley's Health and Wellbeing Board his experience of his journey in the last six months, where he stood up and said where he was and where he is now and how he's done it and how more confident he is and now he can see a future. And his future is that he's now going to become an expert patient trainer. So he now has a new sense of self. And that's all it's about. Not complex, but it's about being a human-to-human together in a really important guided discovery and conversation. Not all patients, indeed, I guess, not all doctors want to be part of shared decision-making. Let's talk about patients first. A patient who comes to you and says, Doctor, I'm ill, fix me, Mm -hmm. where do you start? 
just again clarifying what it is that they see needs to be fixed, clarifying what their ideas about what they think could do it to fix it, and then open their minds up to the fact that actually sometimes in life some things can't be fixed and we may need to look at other options. Okay, there's only one thing my patient wants and it's get rid of my pain. Okay, that's absolutely fine, but we're stuck with a puzzle. The puzzle we have is that even if we remove the limb that has the pain embedded in it, when the limb is removed, the pain is still there. So we aren't at a situation where we can physically fix what is a system processing problem, that the whole pain nerve network system is unfixable but can be at least managed in a way to shrink some of the pain but it's not totally removable and that's what that pain puzzle tells us and there are lots of others like that so that's some information some knowledge for you to go away and think about the other thing is I often find that people who come with that very fixed kind of choice is that actually it's not them necessarily, but actually other people around them. Their partners, often their parents, often their children. So very important influencing factors. One of the things that's not recognised in shared decision-making is who is influencing your decision and how much. Okay, and that's really important because actually most clinicians never think about that. And when people are very fixed and still seeking a total solution for their pain, it's a puzzle. You know, we still see patients 300 pain injections, three spinal operations, two dorsal column stimulators, and they still have pain, if not worse. What's that tell us? You wouldn't offer that to a dog. What it tells me is that they haven't accepted in the first place that the pain is there and actually it's affecting other parts of their lives. I think it's just also sharing that they actually have a lot of pressure around them to be who they were and they can't be that person and so that actually is impacting on relationships and those relationships haven't adjusted and accepted and so that impedes or impairs the progress that that person could make and also that it reflects that their GPs or their um, other clinicians think there's a solution but actually there isn't and that's because of the lack of knowledge so it's actually quite complex So how do you re-educate those GPs then, those medical practitioners who may not see shared decision making as a good option very simply by enabling people, whatever their long-term condition, to have access to more knowledge, more skills, more tools and resources in a variety of ways. So they can have access to knowledge, which can be from peer support, it can be from website, it can be from a local particular pain or other condition-related group. Um, it may be some information that's in and amongst their healthcare professionals that they're seeing, be their practice nurse or um, their physio. But 
discover that. Then they need to discover that you need perhaps a different set of skills and tools and so on. By patient saying we need a different conversation, then some of the clinicians who may be wavering, not quite certain, a bit scared, a bit threatened, it may take more time, some of those will go in the direction of shared decision-making. Others will not. It's the nature of us as human beings and the human mind. But you've just used a valuable word, in, in my book anyway, you've used the word conversation rather than consultation. Yes. And if you notice, I've been saying on the whole, people. Not patients. Yes, with pain. Okay. So I've changed my language slowly and consistently because actually we're not patients, we are people who have health problems, who have a pain condition or a cardiac condition. And the moment you start to change the language, you then have a different conversation. And we, the people with pain, have a right to be part of the decision-making. Absolutely. Very much so. It's your lives, it's your journey, it's your future. And the excitement of this work in pain rehabilitation, in pain management, the excitement is what the person with pain achieves, what life they grow, like the example I gave earlier. I'd never believed this lad, Yorkshire lad, with a bit of a T-shirt on, a gap between his T-shirt and his trousers, struggled into the consultation room. Never did I think, six months later, he'd be standing up before the Kirklees Joint and Health and Wellbeing Board to share how he had taken control of his life. That's magic, because that's nothing to do with what we've done. It's everything about guiding a new direction of travel, a new journey, new possibilities. So exciting.